Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. As long as I'm president of the United States... Iran will never be allowed to have a nuclear weapon. Tensions between China and the United States have been increasing over trade, coronavirus, Taiwan, Hong Kong, and now the South China Sea. It takes a few to make war, but it takes a village and a nation to build peace. Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Hi, I'm Rob Malley. Thank you for joining us on this edition of Hold Your Fire. I'm joined by my chief of staff, Brittany Brown. Brittany, great to have you again. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. And today is a special, special podcast, special episode because it's a special time. We're going to be joined by Vina Najibullah, who's the wife of our colleague and friend, Michael Kovrig, who's been detained now uh, for two years arbitrarily by China. So, so Brittany, we all know why Michael is being arbitrarily detained uh, in China. Nothing that he has done. It's because he's a Canadian citizen who happened to be in Beijing at the wrong time. Right after Canada had detained the CFO, the chief financial officer of Huawei, a Chinese company, on extradition charges to the U.S. And uh, in retaliation, China decided to detain not just Michael Kovrig, our colleague, but also Michael Spavor, another Canadian uh, citizen, holding them in a form of hostage diplomacy, an outrageous form of hostage diplomacy, in order to try to pressure the Canadian government to release Ms. Mong, the chief financial officer of Huawei. Yeah. So we're going to be talking to Vina about what it's been like for the past two years. But before that, Brittany, just want to go back, because it was two years ago exactly this week that you, you woke me up in the middle of the night. I was, uh, I recall vividly, I was in Japan on my way to Australia and I rerouted my, my travel plans. I, I went to China, I went to Beijing, you know, not knowing exactly what I would do, but feeling I needed to be there, hoping I would meet with Michael. Of course, uh, that, that didn't happen, but meeting with others. And since that time, you've been leading our efforts at Crisis Group to try to keep the organization together because many people in the organization knew and, and, and loved Michael. And I'd like to hear from you sort of what you've done to keep keep the organization resilient, but also 
taking steps to make sure that uh, when Michael came out, his transition would be as seamless as possible. Yeah, thanks, Rob. I think I, I want to start by saying, uh, although I am a part of a team that has been monitoring what's been going on with Michael and been responding, so it's it's me and a whole team of people at Crisis Group who have been focused on Michael. I think most of us wake up almost every day over the last two years and, and think about that our colleague um, is in detention as we kind of keep going with our normal lives. But this team's, you know, at the beginning, we were really focused on anything that we could possibly do, of course, politically, or where could we add pressure, or how could we get him out? As you said, none of us dreamed that two years would go by that he still would be in detention. I think, you know, we were thinking worst case scenario, three months, six months, or me as the optimist was thinking, okay, we're going to get him out any day. Now we're going to get a phone call that says he's on a plane um, on his way home. But I think what the team has, we started out thinking about the politics behind this. And then we started thinking about the places where we could um, have impact. And we realized that one of the things that's going to be really important is how is Michael when he gets out? And so we've really spent a lot of energy thinking about preparing for his release. And that means things like everything that Michael has missed over the last two years, we have somebody who keeps a record of what's going on in the world. So that when Michael gets out, he has a record of what happened in the world. And some things are as small as, you know, what football team won the World Cup or what, you know, whatever it might, it might be a small sports thing or, you know, what happened with Prince Harry and, you know, things that are pop culture, um, but also the big things that are happening, right? He missed, you know, the U.S. election. He missed politics in Canada. He's missed big things that have happened all over the world. So we tried to keep a really good record. So when he gets out, he has a book of Here's a summary of your last two years um, from pop culture so he can be brought up. The other thing that we've done is people write Michael letters. And so when he gets out, he'll have a book of letters that are marked by, you know, weekly and monthly and sometimes quarterly, whatever people want in the organization who know him where people are able to write him letters. And he has the thoughts of these people, these staff, and some people he knows. And, you know, because of who we are at Crisis Group, where people are all over the world, some of our staff have never met Michael. But we are all in this together because we know that this could have been any of us. And, you know, that's something we'll we'll hear about when we talk with Vina. But it is what I think we all think of. This could have been any one of us who happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time and could have spent two years of our life you know, locked in a small cell. There's something else you've done, which, uh, which I would not have thought of, and I'm sure you, you and the team must have heard it from others, which is to engage in activities that Michael is engaged in at the same time or more or less the same time he's engaged in them. So we all did a plank competition to see how long we could hold in a plank, and Michael's record, as I recall, was some, something extraordinary. I forget what it yeah, was, like 20 minutes, minutes or 18 like minutes. 18-minute plank, yeah. Uh, um, reading the same books he's reading, and we'll talk to Vina about that a little bit. He walks 7,000 steps a day, equivalent of five kilometers. And as many of us at Crisis Group as possible are trying to do the same this week. Uh, tell me a little bit, what, what, what's behind that? What have we learned from others who've had to endure this, this solitary confinement or this confinement for so long? Why does that matter? Yeah, so we did a lot of research of, um, you know, talking to folks who had been in situations that were similar to what Michael's going through right now. And we found that it, it was very important for his mental health to feel connected to the outside world and to also, you know, have some agency. And once again, we'll talk about this later, but I think it's really important that you know, that he feels like he has control over something. And so the fact that he's picking a book 
and then we can all be reading the book with him and give our feedback about the book. He might not be able to to know all of this stuff until he gets out, but when he gets out and he sees pictures of a hundred of his colleagues doing a push-up challenge to see how many push-ups we can all do because we know he can do push-ups or how long we can hold a plank for or hundreds of his colleagues walking, thinking about him in solidarity with him, it it helps him to feel a little less alone. And what we've learned from other people who've been through this is that that becomes really important, that he he isn't isolated. We haven't forgotten about him. He is going to be shocked as, you you know, Michael is a kind of a private person. And when he gets out and sees that his face is everywhere, that, you know, that we all know him now in a way that, you know, that it's pretty intimate, that we know a lot about this individual who was kind of private. I think it's, it's going to be really important in his healing and as he tries to, you know, reintegrate integrate into the world. It's really great that you've been doing that. And I do hope that it makes Michael's transition easier. We're going to now hear from Vina, his wife and best friend, uh, what it's been like. But we'll continue to fight till Michael is out, until Michael is reunited with his loved ones and can catch up with everything he's missed over the last two years. I want to say, Rob, I'm really excited for this interview. I think people are going to find it to be especially um, fascinating because Vina is such an incredible woman. And, you know, the more we all get to know Michael, we understand why the two of them got married because they're a really incredible couple. And um, listening to her and her mind and the way that she's approached all of this is really very impressive. So it's, a, it's a, an exciting interview for us today. Well, let's, let's move to that then. Thanks. Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. So Brittany and I were joined by Vina Najibullah, Michael's wife. Vina, it's an honor to have you on the on the podcast today. And I know how difficult, well, I know how difficult the last two years have been for you and how difficult this week is in particular. So, so thank you for being here. Thank you so much, Rob. It's very good to, to be with you as well. And, uh, you know, we've spoken, all three of us have spoken a lot over over the last two years about what's happening to Michael, but this is an opportunity to do what I actually haven't really done with you, uh, and I don't know if Brittany's had the time, which is to talk to you about you, about Michael, and and sort of take a step back, and maybe you could tell us first how the two of you met. Yeah, um, Michael and I met almost 20 years ago in New York City, uh, Columbia University. We were both grad students, and uh, we met in uh, international economics class, kind of one of the first uh, few days of school. I was sitting in the front row. He was kind of in the back of the class. And uh, from then on, we first formed a friendship. Um, he's, he was and continues to be my best friend. And uh, we've lived together. We got married. Um, we go way back, but uh, it's been almost 20 years, the last two of which um, he has been in, in jail. So the last two years, we haven't really been in the same space, which is um, the most challenging part of all of this, is that isolation and separation. But tell us a little bit about him. What's he like? What, you know, what kind of person is he? What makes him passionate? What gets him to get up and and, and do the work he does? (laughs) Michael is one of the most interesting people I've ever met and have known. Uh, He's a bit of a Renaissance man. Um, He uh, obviously is uh, an international affairs student and uh, practitioner, but um, he's also deeply creative he was in a punk band when he was younger. He was in uh, drama classes, uh, really loves to read. He studied English in uh, undergrad. Um, he's deeply curious. I think one of the things that I love most about Michael is he's genuinely curious to learn, uh, no matter what the subject matter. 
uh, fascinated with travel and different cultures, different foods. Even like during our normal life, he would hate to eat the same thing twice in a row, right? Like there's just this desire for newness, for uh, different ways of um, experiencing the world and being in conversation with the world. And one of the things that he mentioned in uh, one of his last letters was how much he looks forward to the day where he can rejoin the conversation, the broader conversation with life um, and with the world. And I mean, you said something about him being a Renaissance man. I'm, I'm sure you, you felt this. I mean, just reading his letters, and obviously I don't know him anywhere as closely as well as you do, but it is an amazing wealth of knowledge and curiosity. And I, I always think to myself, how could he do all that when he's dealing with the, the, the rigors of being uh, in, de- in detention? And he's he's probably has learned more about himself and about the world in the last two years. Not that anyone would want to go through that, but uh, more yeah. than than most of us. So I, that, that really does come across. No, for sure. And um, in part of making sense of this experience, I mean, it's, it's an extremely challenging, um, heartbreaking, unjust detention that he's going through. But I think what he's trying to make sense of is how these two years fit in the larger trajectory of his life. Like he spent many years very engaged with the world, attempting to, to make a difference, to kind of be of service. That's why he... Uh, became a public servant, and that's why he continues to work in that domain. But the last two years have been about himself, like kind of going deep within himself, um, as his environment is extremely barren, monastic. Um, he often describes this as a concrete jungle or completely barren um, external environment. He's getting to spend a lot of time in exploration of his inner character at what it means to to be a good person. Um, He actually was talking that maybe one of the areas which he would want to explore when he's out is kind of ethics in the international affairs, right? Like the wrong and right of, and that that begins, first of all, from really getting to know yourself, being able to sit quietly for prolonged periods of time with yourself. And Michael has been forced to do exactly that. You know, it's funny. I I mean, I've, I've learned so much about Michael through you over the last two years. And now that I know he was in a punk band, I like him even more. Um, (laughs) But uh, (laughs) one of the the things I wanted to ask you about was, you know, Vina, when you think about the last two years, I mean, as also an international affairs professional, what do you think the world has missed because Michael hasn't been a part of that dialogue? Like, what has the world missed hearing from Michael over the last two years? Oh, wow. I mean, I can say, first of all, what I've, I have missed. Um, I have missed my best friend. I've missed someone who is very slow to judgment and very good um, at listening. So I think the world is also missing a human, a mind that is curious, that is interested in seeing multiple perspectives, especially when it comes to East Asia and given all of the challenges and difficulties that we are experiencing right now in the relationship between the U.S. and and, and China and, and the rest of it, to have someone like Michael working for the International Crisis Group, an organization devoted to preventing deadly conflicts. I think um, to have him in isolation and removed from this uh, public conversation is a great loss. It's a great loss for having another perspective, a nuanced perspective, one that attempts to see um, areas for cooperation and dialogue, even in the most kind of loud, noisy um, calls for confrontation and um, animosity. I'm sure this is a tricky question to, to, to answer, but obviously, you know, he's now suffered at the hands of that country that he was mm. 
that he wanted to explain to the world and he wanted the world to understand them and China to understand the world. As you say, that was part of what he was doing uh, with us and doing so well. How do you think this experience might have changed that or do you think he'll, he will come out and have that same view only obviously uh, with that experience behind him? Mm. It's a very good question. And obviously the only window I have into that are his letters and he has to be careful in, in terms of what he shares. But what I have picked up is that he um, constantly mentions um, how he is processing his own emotions and the trauma of these past two years and that he hopes that he will experience what few experience, which is post-traumatic growth rather than post-traumatic stress, so that he will come out of this. That's, that's, that's great. Come out of this as someone who not only has survived, but someone who who's been uh, made better. Um, even well before the pandemic, back in 2019, in one of his letters, he said, "I hope to be able to come back and rebuild and to build better his own life and his own relationship with the world." Um, he also says that he, on a daily basis, um, sometimes on an hourly basis, tries to change his anger into determination and his grievance into fortitude and kind of resilience, right? So, I mean, there is a constant struggle to to stay um, in the frame of mind that allows him to to survive and also to make the most of this experience, to not be broken by it. Vina, where does that come from? I mean, I think all of us have been so amazingly impressed by this resilience and this, the attitude that, you know, I mean, the words that you've just said are, are powerful for any human being to be saying, but for mm. Michael and the situation he's in, where does that come from? I and mean, did you have any sense um, that that existed inside Michael before this happened? Like, did you get little <laughs> signs throughout your 20 years together where you're like, whoa, this guy is really resilient? I mean, like, was there anything that, that sort of gave this away? Uh, no, I think in our day-to-day -day life when uh, we were living in New York, it was more the stubbornness uh, that was coming across. So I think from the very <laughs> beginning, Michael uh, has struck me as an incredibly determined and stubborn person. Uh, like I said, day-to-day, -day, that sometimes was a challenge. But it is certainly um, grounding him in this experience, like that inner resolve, that inner willpower, um, that that discipline to stay the course. Like, I mean, in, in one of his letters, he talks about how it's very difficult to exercise and to keep moving in a very confined concrete cell and that he doesn't like that kind of exercise, but he likes the feeling he gets afterwards. And he recognizes that like he needs to keep going. Right. So there's this kind of like rational, stoic, disciplined, like, Yes, I don't like this. Yes, this is hard. But here are the things that help me get through exercise, meditation. And he just does it. I mean, he was like that all along ever since I've known him, like the, his capacity to stick to something, be disciplined, work hard. Um, he would always joke that, like, I'm one of those people to whom some things come easily. So I never had to really work hard at things. And that for him, you know, this isn't a lot of things are not natural. He wasn't naturally good at things. So he had to really devote time to mastering things. And that comes with that kind of discipline. He also mentioned that um, 25 years of martial arts and strength training has really helped him out a lot. Um, in fact, he was pointing out that... Um, Iron teaches you certain things and it strengthens your mind 
even more so than uh, your muscles and your bones. That like, and again, he wasn't a naturally gifted person. He was asthmatic as a child. He was fairly clumsy and kind of not naturally strong. But after 25 years of like really dedicated physical exercise and training, he has kind of cultivated that base that's really, I think, helping him in this environment because it's, I mean, I can't imagine what it's like to to wake yeah. up every morning in a cell and then to will yourself to take 7,000 steps, to will yourself to do push-ups, to will yourself to, to do yoga. I mean, I can't do that during the pandemic. I come up with every excuse not to <laughs> go and not to exercise. So like, I'm sure lots of listeners can can relate to that. This is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Today, we're talking with Vina Najabula for a special episode about Michael Kovrig. I want to ask you a little bit about sort of what comes through from his letters about his everyday life. But but what Brittany said, I mean, it's true. There's no trace of bitterness in his letters, which yeah. it's almost hard to, to, to fathom. And we were talking about it earlier with Brittany, but the... You know, we are now at Crisis Group trying to take our 7,000 steps a day and uh, at least once, at least once and uh, sort of as an act of solidarity. But it is you need to have a discipline of mind and a faith in the future, which I'm not sure Mm -hmm. is what we all have. But so it comes through in the letters. And as you say, the letters don't say everything. But what are his days Mm -hmm. like? I mean, what what is he enduring right now? Um, I mean, the little that he's able to share, it seems like there's a lot of uh, kind of um, regimented things like uh, wake up at a certain hour, like 6.30 a.m. Everybody has to wake up. Uh, breakfast served at a certain hour, which generally is like a bowl of boiled rice and maybe some boiled vegetables. Lunch, there is a mandatory nap time, uh, which he says he uses for meditation because obviously he doesn't nap. He hasn't napped as an adult uh, his whole life. So he, he uses that for meditation. Then kind of evening hours. So there's there's a schedule and a regimented way of being, um, which is really hard for someone like Michael. He's, again, like as a bit of a maverick, he, he likes doing things his own way. So to be that scheduled is challenging. Um, for the first six months, he was uh, in solitary and isolation without books, without any communication. So that was its own kind of experience. But for the last uh, part of a year and a half of it, he is able to get books. So a big part of his uh, days, from what we understand, is spent reading. I mean, he calls his books his kind of like main way of um, passing time and kind of the solace of his uh, half-life, as he calls it. Like it's kind of, um, that is really what's giving him a way to to move through the days. Uh, He also, like I said, exercises, meditates, because a number of uh, books that he's reading suggest that in situations like this and confinement, you have to exercise agency. He tries to exercise that agency by, um, you know, having his own kind of like, I uh, recite two song lyrics every day, or I do gratitude prayers. So like he he's created places in his day where he exercises some limited control as a way to, to maintain agency and um, kind of his own selfhood. And so he he gets to, to, to ask for certain books, right? Yeah. So uh, again, um, this whole two years has been kind of an experience and things have kind of changed throughout the process. But uh, once we started to receive letters from him, which was uh, around May of 2019, he then was able to communicate through those letters uh, what books he wants. So he makes these like uh, very careful lists of, of books, titles, authors, which 
always blows my mind. I have no idea how he remembers things and can sort of like, you know, he sometimes says, send me this book when it comes out in paperback. It's like, how do you even know that book is out in hardcover? But so it's, it's mind boggling. I think he's reading footnotes or bibliographies. I don't know. Um, so he sends these meticulous lists of books and uh, we try to send him as much as we can, but some books make it through, some don't. Obviously, given who Michael is, he's interested in international affairs and current affairs and geopolitics and China-U.S. dynamics. Many of those books, um, unfortunately, are not uh, permitted. So he ends up reading a lot of uh, philosophy, a lot of history, biography, um, some economic books as well, strategy books. I don't know if you're at liberty to mention two or three books that he has read and that that, uh, you you remember. Yeah. So, I mean, recently, actually... um, we haven't received many letters since uh, the pandemic and since June, so I often reread his letters. And uh, in his uh, letter from January of, of 2020, he did like a fairly long, almost like a book review of the book Anti-Fragile, which I thought was so timely given everything that's happening with the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And, and he was writing that completely in, in his own world and not aware of how relevant that would be to what uh, we we're going through. So he did a very interesting um, yeah, comparison of, of anti-fragile. He also is reading the book Resilience. Um, he mentioned in earlier letters the Mandela's book, um, to 27,000 right. Steps of Freedom. I'm, see, this is why I'm so amazed that Michael can remember things. I can't remember titles or authors to save my life, so I have to <laughs> go back. But basically every letter has like 10 to 15 um, books that he has either read or wants to read or is somehow comparing or reflecting on. It's it's pretty incredible, um, especially because I think we're not really sure how much Michael knows about what's going on in the outside world. Yet when he asks for these books, they're like the most timely things. Yeah. What does he know about what's happening outside of um, the world? Well, um, during 2019, Michael had these regular monthly consular visits, and he was also able to get letters from us. And those were sources of information for him. So that's how he kind of could understand a little bit what was happening. Unfortunately, 2020 has been really different. Since January, he has only had two consular visits, and they were in October and November of this year. So there was a long period of time um, where he had very little information. He wasn't getting most of our letters, and he didn't have his monthly 30-minute contact with Canadian officials. So um, he now, I mean, but because of October and November virtual consular visits, uh, he understands that there is a pandemic, that that's completely changing the way we live, work, and, and make sense of the world. He understands that that's partly why he's also been even more cut off and isolated from uh, from the world. I think it's it's hard for him to to make sense of the scale of the pandemic. I've, we've mentioned it a few times, and and I know you guys have, have shared that as well in messages, but um, he knows very little, and he often talks about how that is one of the hardest things for someone who was so connected, who observed the world and and politics and uh, world affairs with such kind of um, attention and precision to know nothing um, is really disorienting. So I think about, you know, two years ago, I was introduced to you. Um, So not only was I, um, you know, did this situation start with Michael, but I think crisis group and I mean, me specifically, I was introduced to you and you have been nonstop in this fight to try and get Michael out. And I was hoping you could talk a little bit about where you get your strength from. 
because we, we've talked a lot about where Michael gets his strength from, but I mean, Vina, it's been incredibly impressive from all of us seeing how you are nonstop about this. You, you work mm-hmm. on this, you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So could you talk a little bit about yourself and where you get your strength from? Thanks, Brittany. And, and actually it's been the most difficult two years of my life, but one of the things that, um, makes it a little bit better is all the people that I've met. Um, you guys at Crisis Group, uh, Michael's colleagues uh, at Global Affairs and around the world, like that has been the silver lining, I guess, or the one positive thing that's come out of this, the, the friendships and the solidarity and the support um, that I get. So to answer your question, I mean, in part, that helps me keep going, knowing that um, Michael and I are not alone in this fight, that our families are not alone in this fight, that we have people around the world who um, who think of Michael, who understand how unjust his situation is, and who are, in their ways, calling or working for his release. I mean, it's it's been two years, so I can't, like, there's been ups and downs. I, I have my moments of hope and then moments of, um, that are more difficult, but I um, gain a lot of strength from Michael's letters. Um, he really is an incredibly... Um, good writer. And his words are both beautiful and and haunting. Sometimes I sort of feel like I'm just kind of like permeated by his words and the way he describes certain things. And and that kind of almost like propels me to to do whatever I can, like even in moments where I feel physically exhausted or mentally just kind of completely blocked. Like that sense that, um, that he's staying hopeful, that gives me capacity to, to keep going as well. But it's not easy, and, and, and I'm so glad I'm not alone. I'm so glad Crisis Group has made this a top priority, that the government of Canada has made this a top priority. I mean, it's it helps me believe in humanity, even though it's a really difficult experience to go through. So you've, uh, and, and like Brittany, just uh, can't even imagine how you do it and how you do what you're doing so well in terms of fighting for Michael, and uh, I know he knows that. You've spoken, obviously, with it. people are going to be hearing uh, your words. I think they're going to be very moved by them. What would you like people listening to us, whether they are private citizens or, or government officials, what would you like them to take from this? What would you like them to do? Mm. I mean, I guess I want the world to remember that Michael is an innocent man. He is in this predicament, this unjust imprisonment for no fault of his own and for no other reason than being a Canadian citizen. I also want um, listeners to remember that this could have happened to any one of us, uh, any other analyst, any other former diplomat, that um, that Michael is caught in a geopolitical struggle well outside of his own doing or something that he had any influence in, and that no matter how difficult and how dark the circumstances, he has been able to hold on to hope. He's been able to keep hope alive. And one of the reasons he's able to do that is because he's reminded that he's not alone, that people have not forgotten him, that the world is fighting for his liberty, that we fundamentally know and believe and will fight for the fact that this is not okay. This is not how states should conduct their foreign policy, that innocent citizens should not be caught in the crossfire of superpowers as they negotiate and manage their competition or differences. And I want the world to know that that Michael is staying positive, but that this is taking a toll on him and on us, and that we hope 
we really, really hope there is going to be a resolution soon. And, and I would hope everybody to do what they can. I mean, there are the United States government, Canadian government, and the Chinese. The situation is super complicated, but sometimes I'm kind of reminded of the fact that there are really three ways that Michael comes home. China decides or recognizes his innocence and decides to let him go. And I pray and hope against all hope that that happens. Um, the United States intervenes in the original uh, situation that led to this uh, detention, which is the case of Meng Wanzhou in Vancouver, or the government of Canada is able to do something to, to bring them home and engages in discussions with China to that end. So there are three main players that can make a difference. Yeah, I, th I think that's that's uh, well put. I, I, I've told you throughout the two years, I'm confident. I'm confident this is going to be resolved. I'm confident now that... It, Everyone I talk to here, whether it's people on the uh, in the Trump administration or people in the incoming uh, Biden administration, are aware of Michael's case. They say that it's going to be one of the issues that they will focus on with China. And um, I think thanks to what you've done and everything you've said, it, it's nobody will forget it. And you know, we were talking earlier about all the reasons that keep Michael the way he is, uh, resilient, strong. And I'm sure that people who've listened to you now for the last uh, 20 minutes will know that one of the reasons he's so strong and one of the motivations he's going to have to get out and resume his normal life is you. So thank, thank you, you. For, for everything you've said and everything you've done. Thank you so much. Thank you for um, having this conversation with me and with your audience. And thank you for being um, on Michael's team, so to speak, uh, fighting for, on his behalf for the last two years. He knows that you guys are with him. He knows that his colleagues at Crisis Group are with him. Um, the fact that you are uh, walking in solidarity with him uh, this week and, and in general, the fact that you're reading books along with him, that means a lot. Um, in his letters to me, he often says that news of our friends and colleagues from the outside helps me stay strong and keeps hope alive. And I just, you know, continue to to kind of take one step in front of the other. And I know we will prevail. And we'll be there with you. So thank you, Vina. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. That's it for this week's episode of Hold Your Fire. And for all of you listening and who were as moved as I know Brittany and I were uh, listening to, to Vina, you could show your solidarity with Michael by running 5K, walking 5K, walking 7,000 steps, and then posting it on your social media with the hashtag FreeMichaelKovrig. Thank you, and talk to you next week. Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.